Hello, I'm Alex Rutkeen, a barrister at Third Known Essex Chamber specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined today in the shed by Donna Phillips. And anyone who's ever seen or heard one of these before will know I don't really like introducing the person I'm speaking to. I really want them to get the opportunity to introduce themselves. So Donna, over to you. Tell, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, of course. Um, hi, so I'm Donna Phillips. I'm the head of safeguarding at Spectrum. Um, so Spectrum's a community interest company. Um, we provide um, primary care health services into prisons. Um, and we also uh, provide sexual health services in three areas and drug and alcohol services. Um, and what's your background? How did you get into this? So my background is, so I'm a mental health nurse by background. So that's way back in 1998, I started training as a mental health nurse. Um, so I've worked in community forensic settings, um, inpatient units, etc. And then I trained to be a health visitor in 2012, which is where I got a more interest in safeguarding. So um, I worked as a health visitor for about seven years and then I ended up in a, in a safeguarding team, in a MASH team. So working with social care and the police um, and then came into this role two years ago so I've been I've been in Spectrum for two years now and I mean there are a huge number of things I suspect you have to think about in the course of your your day job but the the thing I was really interested to hear about or I read about and the reason the thing I really like you to wanted you to come to the shed to kind of talk with me about is is the issue of food refusal because you've been you've been working on that and kind of thinking about responses to it and I just wonder if you could explain what led to your interest in that and sort of how you the work you've done and, and then we can then we can have a chance about the toolkit yeah so um coming into this role it's totally different to the other roles i've done so prison safeguarding is a, on a different level to any other type of safeguarding um it's totally different to safeguarding the community in that the safeguarding responsibility lies with the governor rather than the safeguarding adults board so um and it's quite challenging working in prison environments because the culture of prisons isn't conducive to safeguarding um automatically so um by and large um it, it's been quite a challenge for me to to come into this role um it it came to light pretty quickly that most of the safeguarding concerns in prisons are around um food refusal so Food refusal, um, obviously, it's 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 exactly what it says. It's when it's when prisoners, patients in prison, uh, for whatever reason, stop eating, um, and it can be a protest. So it can be undertaken by somebody with full mental capacity um, as a protest to gain something. Um, but a lot of the ones that I deal with are around people who don't have mental capacity. So it could be that they've got a psychosis or they've got some other condition, mental health condition or organic condition that's impacting on their capacity to make the decision to not, not eat. So therefore, then it becomes a safeguarding concern. So I started getting more interested in it. And then the opportunity came up um, through some NHS England funding um to bid for some money to to do a project so I, I just I just thought food refusal is a thing that I want to look at because it's the thing that we deal with the most 
Um, so that's that's what led me to consider some sort of tool for staff, really. And so, how did you go about? I mean, how did you go about thinking about what tools were needed and how to sort of get that research process, as it were? Then we can think about the outcome. So at first, I was I knew that um, staff struggled to deal with these cases or insights because they're very complex. Um, and anything to do with mental capacity, I think, is challenging anyway. But there were there were lots of different layers um, within the prison. So there's negotiating the prison regime, the partner work partnership working. It's different within a prison. Um, sometimes the healthcare agenda doesn't fit with the prison agenda, so it it there can be quite a lot of clashes there as well. So I wanted to give staff something, you know, that would help them. So the idea of the toolkit just sort of emerged really. So initially, um, the funding that I, that I bid for with NHS England was to just do some sort of a research project or a quality improvement exercise, just to find out more about what staff would find useful. And originally I had in my mind that we were gonna look at the multidisciplinary team process um, as a tool to facilitate case management of food refusal, which would increase the partnership working. Um, so that's that's what the premise was based on when I started doing the work. So I started off by interviewing staff. So um, I looked at two prisons in the Northeast and I interviewed staff from both the prisons. And the, the, the questions were quite open-ended, so lots of different things came out. But when I started looking at you know putting the themes together um after I'd done the interviews I realized that what staff were saying to me was that they wanted something to help them on a practical and a day-to-day -day basis in managing these cases so that's where the idea came from it sort of emerged it didn't start out as the original plan but it sort of emerged then from this piece of from these interviews that I did and then I just I just decided that we'd do a toolkit which is basically a pocket-sized guide for staff to have with them. Um, and a prison's quite an unusual environment. So, you know, staff, people can't access the internet in prison. You know, it's quite, a, it's not somewhere you can't go on your phone and Google something, you know, you know, staff aren't allowed to have phones or anything like that. So I wanted something that they could have in the hand, an old fashioned practical guide that they could have with them so that it's there when they need to know that information. Yeah. I mean, it's a brilliant piece of work. I mean, and I'll, I'll put the link to it at the bottom of the, the, the page for this for this discussion. I mean, it's really I mean, I'm not a clinician. I'm not a prison officer. I'm yeah. merely a lawyer. But but it's it's super clear and strikes me as super, well, it's undoubtedly super clear. It also strikes me as super practical. And I just wonder what the kind of, you know, please go and read it, um, people for themselves. But the kind of the headline messages that you were trying to get across in the toolkit and the kind of I mean, both the kind of headline messages in terms of how you think and then the headline messages in terms of how to resolve these situations, because those are, I think, might be two slightly different things. Yeah, so um, the, the headline messages are around the thought process and sort of, I suppose, the assessment part of it. So in terms of, you know, what is behind this? this food refusal what why is this patient behaving in this way and almost sort of like trying to resolve the issue early on really before it progresses and and 
so it's very much about you know communication um thinking about the person's mental capacity thinking about you know if they've got a mental health problem if there's something that can be done from a practical level um before it sort of goes any further um and it, and so and that's where the, the guidance around the mental capacity assessments which is part of the toolkit as well so thinking about is there is there something impacting on the person's mind or brain which is which is then leading to these decisions that they're making so for example we have cases where people have got a psychosis so they 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 believe that the food is poisoned and that the water's poisoned so that's the reason that they're not eating or drinking um you know things like that so it's about really getting to the bottom of it um you know from a practical practical point of view from an assessment point of view and then the practical guide around mental capacity so how do you assess someone's mental capacity you know what does that look like talk breaking it down the, the two stage test um the documentation all that stuff you know the making sure that everything's everything's covered the patient's wishes etc are all in there um and then and then also thinking about you know from a clinical point of view as well what you need to be looking at on a daily basis in terms of physical observations um at what point you know does it become a, a medical emergency and then how do you engage partners so for example the acute trust if we need to take a patient into hospital you know how do we work with the prison service to ensure that they're they're supporting with the with that sort of thing so the toolkit it's sort of like it sort of follows the process really right from the beginning right hopefully until the patient either receives treatment or starts eating again or drinking again yeah but i mean presumably it must leave or dull an open question does it leave space for the patient who is just saying no I mean, by pa let's, I mean, patient, because by the time they come to you, they probably are a patient as opposed to just a prisoner at that point. The patient who is just saying no and has got capacity. Yeah. And, and, and it can be really tricky that, you know, getting to that point where we've got a, where we've got an agreement about capacity can be quite tricky because, you know, fluctuating capacity is, is quite a common thing, you know, and, and, and also we've got different people who might be doing the capacity assessment. So you might get a psychiatrist who's done a capacity assessment and knows the patient really well. They've got a history of psychosis, for example, and that the psychiatrist deems that patient doesn't have capacity for that decision. But then the patient goes into hospital and a consultant in hospital might might then deem that they do have capacity. And that can be that's one of the biggest challenges that we have. But if a patient does have capacity and and, you, and there's no grey areas around that, then then it would be a case of the it, it wouldn't really necessarily necessarily come under a safeguarding remit. But we would still support, um, and we would still work to try and encourage that patient, you know, to try and get to the bottom of the issue and try and resolve the issue as much as possible. Yeah, and I think that's I'm not, as well. I'm not surprised, but I'm also very glad to hear it because the mere fact someone's got capacity and is saying no doesn't yeah. mean everybody walks off. It just means that the negotiation have to, negotiations have to proceed on the basis you're negotiating with someone who's got the ability to say yes or no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so just walk me through. I mean, I just just so people who who you know, because this goes out to all sorts of people. I mean, 
How often does this sort of thing crop up? I mean, it must be cropping up a reasonable amount, but you know, my idea of reasonable might be different to your idea of reasonable amount. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it happens quite a lot. We've always got several cases. I mean, we've got we've got 19 secure prison sites now. And we, we're always dealing with a food refusal somewhere. And interestingly, sometimes they happen in clusters. And I think okay. some of that is about people seeing other people doing it and thinking, oh, well, I want this or I want that. So I'm going to join. I'm going to do that as well. Um, we've seen an increase in the number of cases we're made aware of. But I think that's more that staff are now recognising it and, and involving us sooner. I don't think it's increased. I think it, I think the awareness of staff's increased. Um, so I believe now this I might be totally wrong with this figure, but I believe that we've had some something in the region of fifty plus over the past twelve months. Which um, is cases. yeah, yeah. Which is more than a fair. I mean, I, I have to say, I suspect many people who've got no familiarity with prison might be quite surprised to hear. I mean that's so. I mean it's 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 a problem. It's a it's a phenomena which needs to which needs tools to deal with properly, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, what I mean, just walk people through for people who may not be familiar. If the conclusion is that the person doesn't have capacity to make decisions about food, is it automatically always going to be the case that steps are going to end up being taken to to bring about them their feeding? I mean, whether by restraint or whatever, the kind of higher end. So it very much depends on the clinical picture. So we would implement um, clinical assessments at certain points. And a lot of the complications with these cases that we have is that people refuse the clinical observations as well. So quite often you'll get someone who's refusing food and we want to, if someone's refusing food, we want to be doing regular physical checks, you know, whether that's um, testing the urine, whether it's doing blood tests, whether it's just the general observations, but we need to be doing those quite regular um, because that's how we know what impact the food refusal is having. Um, and obviously then as well as that, so, so, so people might start to refuse observations which makes us really worried and and you know it's quite a challenge to deal with because then you know it's really difficult um especially even you know with somebody who doesn't have capacity it's really difficult then making a best interest decision to do observations etc because then you have to you have to use restraint to do things and it's really really challenging um it's always a clinical decision and we, we'll look at a the balance of the risk to the person when we're making the best interest decision so it, there's always a doctor, a senior clinician present who knows the person, who's reviewed the records. Um, we do as many physical observations and tests as we possibly can. Um, and it's a clinical decision. So if we do need to have a best interest meeting where we're deciding on next steps, we, we're weighing up the risk against, you know, going against what the patient wants because we, we don't want to be put you know putting patients through through unnecessary treatments and things unless it unless the risk is really high yeah um, yeah you know so that that's quite that's a real challenge actually that's one of the most challenging things that we have to deal with 
when people are refusing observations. Sometimes they will they will accept observations and tests, and then and that that's reassuring because we know that the bloods are, are fine and that there's nothing happening at the minute that we can't see. Um, but then the danger from a physical point of view comes when people want to start eating again um because that's when refeeding syndrome can kick in just 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 briefly so people may people may not be familiar with refeeding syndrome so it's just get i mean i have a vague clue but it's much better if you if you explain it so i'm not getting it wrong so um when when people have been starving so when they've had minimal nutritional intake for more than 10 10 days is the guide um but when they do start eating again it can cause um, an imbalance of electrolytes mm -hmm. um which can it can cause cardiac arrest and um significant you know organ failure etc and it can be quite quick that it happens so there's no 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 warning or anything like that um so it's important that when somebody has not been eating for a significant time that any calorie intake is then gradually introduced and also that they do need physical monitoring when you do start introducing food to keep an eye on the blood electrolytes um so some people are more at risk than others and there's different levels of risk so there's an extreme risk which is somebody who's got a really low bmi to start with for example they might have had no nutrition for a significant time they've got other health issues um certain types of medication can put them at higher risk and then there's and then there's lower risk people as well so we'd look at that risk grading and we'd decide where they were on that risk um spectrum so to speak um and then the interventions would would sort of fit in but we'd always for somebody at high or extreme risk we'd always seek to get them out into hospital so that they could be in, with a specialist nutrition team to to manage that rather yeah. than doing insight. Okay, oh, interesting. So Donna, there, there are loads of other things that I'd love to ask you um, because this is it's such a complicated area and it throws yeah. up so many difficulties, but we normally try and stick to 20 minutes and we basically hit 20 minutes. So- All right, okay. No, but so it's, it's thank you very much indeed. And as I said, I, I'll put a link to that toolkit at the bottom of the page for this, for this chat so people can see for themselves. And I have to say, um, to my mind, it's useful not just in a, in a prison setting. It's also actually really helpful just as a tool for other situations where people are saying, you know what, I don't want to eat or drink. And then people are trying to navigate through, well, what, am I, what are my responses supposed to be? So thank you yeah. very much indeed. Thank you so much for your time, Donna. No problem. You're welcome.